Well, like I said, uh, it went so well. We got such a good response last week. We thought we would do this again today. So thank you, gentlemen, for, for doing this. And again, the men are now, yep, I see John in the back. Yep, Sheldon in the back. So if you guys want to start going to the back, if you have questions, we'll have you start lining up and going from there. Uh, just to kick us off this morning, I'm going to start us off with a question that I received. And uh, this pertains, Mike, to your current teaching on repentance and forgiveness. More forgiveness, actually. And this, this one, here's, here's the question. They said their Bible study was talking about this, too. So you have a lot of pressure. You have a lot of people asking this. It says, since repentance is necessary for forgiveness, and you can address all of this, why did the king have compassion and forgive the slave's debt since the slave didn't ask for mercy and forgiveness, but instead begged for patience to repay his impossible debt. And then it says, and why did the king then hold his slave accountable for his debt, even though he had already forgiven him? Yeah, so, so for one thing, I think that there is no question, there's unquestionably a plea for mercy. Have patience with me, okay? So that, I think, is the, the representation of remorse, regret, seeking a release, seeking some sort of relaxation of the application of strict justice. Now, does he do it in the right way? No, he doesn't, right? He, he, he is deluded to think that he could repay uh, $11.5 billion, 10,000 talents, right? Uh, and, it, and it speaks to the, the natural man's natural legalistic tendency to want to pay God back rather than to receive pure mercy, pure grace, right? Because I got to do something. I've got to atone for my sins. I've got to be, I've got to be righteous. I got to clean myself up. But I think that there's no denying that however imperfect it was, it was a plea for mercy. Don't, don't do to me what I deserve strictly. So, so number one there. And then what was the second part there? Why did the king then hold his slave accountable for his debt, even oh, though but, he had but already Even forgiven. before that. So the king... Uh, so the king ha- he said, since repentance is necessary for forgiveness, right. why did the king have compassion and forgive the slave's debt, since the slave didn't ask for mercy and forgiveness, but instead begged for patience? So, so I, would, I would argue that he did ask okay. for mercy, and he asked for forgiveness in the wrong way, and, okay. the, and, the, and the, the master was super abundantly gracious. And then why did he hold still hold his slave accountable for his debt even though he had already forgiven him. Right. So at that point, now you're getting into the question of how far do you press a parable, right? And you have to recognize the difference between parables and allegories. So an allegory is something in which like it's a story in which all the details correspond one to one to some aspect of the uh, the intended lesson. Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory, right? Where you can look and see details everywhere, and something always represents something. Parables are different than that. Uh, parables are uh, an illustration of a of a singular main point whose details are incidental. And if you press the details of a parable, you wind up, you know, making it walk on all fours, and you miss the the big picture. Jesus is trying to illustrate the fact that, I mean, again, if you don't forgive your brother from your heart, my heavenly father will also do this to you. And so he's got to illustrate the same, sort of the same principle as the the seed that's sown among the rocky soil that springs up with joy, that gives itself uh, every representation to be a, a plant 
that's healthy, that's rooted in fertile soil and is going to yield a crop. And then, uh, given the circumstances of life, the, you know, the sun comes out, it withers away because it has no root. So when somebody comes into the church, right, it appears, and, if, and they're outwardly associated with Christianity, they make a profession of faith, it appears as if they are forgiven, it appears as if they are Christians. It appears as if they are children of God. And, and according to the judgment of charity, we, uh, we regard them as such. But then the point of the parable is nobody truly forgiven of the um, incalculable debt that we have been forgiven of can be so untouched by that uh, forgiveness, by that grace, that they can be hardened uh, to refuse forgiveness to others. And so that's a, that's a sign that you're not truly regenerate in the first place. But just like any other passage in Scripture where those who reveal themselves to be finally unbelievers you know, do, they're regarded as believers until they give that evidence. And so there's this notion that it's not an unbeliever, or it's not a believer losing his salvation, or it's not salvation that's actually being taken away. This is, the, this is Jesus' way of illustrating that one who seemed to be saved really demonstrated how, you know, by his, his hardness, how he wasn't saved at all. Yeah, that, by the way, that parable is a, a good example of why you should not uh, build soteriological doctrines from the parables. Parable, uh, like Mike said, it's not an allegory, it's a parable, which means it's designed to teach one central lesson, and that, in that case, the lesson is how awful it is to, to, to hold unforgiveness in your heart, bitterness in your heart, how, what a wicked thing it is to do that. But we know that God doesn't withdraw forgiveness after he's given it because Romans eleven twenty nine says the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't, he doesn't take back his gifts. And so when, he's, when he gives us forgiveness, the truth is along with that, he gives us a new heart that's full of forgiveness for others. Can I, maybe a follow-up to that, I mean, I know that's not maybe the point of this, but I have the microphone, so I get to ask whatever. Um, (laughs) Going back, I mean, this whole parable started because his disciples said, how many times do I have to forgive my, you know, others? Is repentance necessary for us to forgive our brothers? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's often debated, and I think there may be even a disagreement about the answer to that question among people who do counseling here at Grace Church, because one of the one of the things that uh, s- sort of floats through the biblical counseling movement is this notion that you know you don't have to forgive unless the person is repentant. Uh, John MacArthur deals with that in his book, The Freedom and Power of Forgiveness, and takes a different view and and says actually we should extend forgiveness even to unrepented people in the sense that we're. We're refusing to hold a grudge or, or remain bitter. You can't restore the relationship completely until the other person repents, but you don't have to hold that sin over their head. And I think people who, who hold this view that, you know, I don't have to forgive you until you admit you were wrong and ask my forgiveness, that tends to multiply division and, and foment bitterness. It's a bad way to think in my view. 
Yeah, I, I'm one who does think that repentance is required for forgiveness by definition, but I think that the, 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 the principle that Phil just stated is really important to agree with, right? That anybody who does think that the Bible defines forgiveness as that which must be mutual, where somebody comes to you and says, I, I confess this sin, I'm seeking your forgiveness, would you forgive me, right? In the absence of that, so anybody who has my position that says, without that, there is no, no forgiveness, that doesn't mean without that, you know, hold yourself aloof from them, be angry with them, nurse bitterness against them, cultivate this sort of angry disposition. Well, he hasn't come and sought my forgiveness, so I don't care what he does. You know what I mean? No, that, that n- nobody who holds my position, you know, would would encourage the people of God to nurse that kind of grudge holding. The the disagreement comes, it's almost virtually a matter of semantics. So if if somebody sins against me, but they either don't know it or uh, they, they don't believe it and so they're not seeking my forgiveness, I'm saying by definition, I can't go and say, oh, I forgive you. That can also become a very passive aggressive thing. Hey, I want you to know I forgive you. Oh, oh really? What did I, what did I do? I, yeah. I forgive you, it's done. <laughs> well, okay. I, you, know, um, you know, I remember somebody sticking out in my mind real well said, had that happened to him, and he says, huh, well, if I'm forgiven, why don't I know about it? <laughs> and, and uh, you know, well, what's going on? And, and why, isn't, why isn't that person acting like it, right? You know, I mean, and that's what happens. Oh, I, I forgive you. And then we get to stay in our separate corners, and I, and I get to stroke my ego because, well, I've forgiven them in my heart, right? That's, that's how that can go wrong. But I think in, in general, right, cultivating the disposition of forgiveness, the readiness to forgive. Again, Psalm 86, 5, for you, O Lord, are good and are ready to forgive uh, all those who call upon you. There's a distinction between forgiveness and readiness to forgive, but that doesn't mean we should ever, if, we're, if, if it's ever the case that we can't grant that transactional forgiveness, it's never the case that we ought to not be cultivating that readiness to forgive. The forgiveness ought to be like the rushing water, you know, that's dammed up by this relational separation. And as soon as there's the breach in the dam, that is the, the, the asking for it, it bursts forward to be granted. So it's not as if, so, so to me, there, it's a disagreement over terms, not over behavior. You should always be so I have a question about that. Would it be your assessment that Jesus used a looser definition of forgiveness than you? Because he said, when you stand praying, if you have anything against your brother, forgive him. When you stand praying. It doesn't say, go and solicit his repentance so right. that you can forgive him. It says, while you're standing there praying, right. get that wretched unforgiveness out of your heart. Right, and, and that, Mark, that's Mark eleven twenty five, 25, and I will admit that that's the, that's the one pas- passage that may, I, think, I think makes this a debate. I think without that, there isn't a debate. However, in, in a similar way to, you know, there being a diversity expre- of expression, I used this illustration a couple weeks ago, you know, I've just spent the last year going through all these texts on particular redemption, right? And saying how, you know, Jesus died for the elect. 14 uh, messages. On yeah, that. yeah. You've been counting, I see. That's good. I wouldn't miss it. Yeah. Well, you know, some, somebody, you know, hears all that teaching and they say, yeah, but I mean, here's this passage where it says Jesus died for all or for the whole world, right? And what you say is, well, yes, there seems to be a diversity of expression on the front end of that, but how do we understand passages that seem to be 
uh, at odds, uh, how do we reconcile them? And so for me, I'm looking at principles like, and you, and you know this, right? The, the Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, forgive as you have been forgiven. God forgives us on the condition of repentance and faith. He, he never forgives anybody who, who hasn't come and asked him for it. And of course, they're asking for it as a gift of his own grace. And so it's not their, like they're mer- meriting anything by their request. And so since that's to be not only the ground, but the pattern of our forgiveness, and since we have passages that are explicit in the conditionality of that, Luke 17, if he repents, forgive him. And if he comes to you saying, seven times a day I repent, then forgive him. I can't, I can't reconcile a full-on unconditional forgiveness position with the conditionality of the if-then clauses in Luke 17. If it was genuinely unconditional, I don't understand how, how there would be any reason to ever say, well, if this happens, then forgive him. Now, again, Mark eleven twenty five would seem to pose that, and I, and I think that's why there's, there's disagreement. I find it easier to offer an alternative explanation to that than to make that the control by which I sort of walk back all of those other passages. No, I get it. And uh, I, I'm impressed that you, off the top of your head, knew the reference to Mark 11.25. How many people could pull that right out of the sky? So that's impressive. But, you know, if you read John MacArthur's book on forgiveness, he deals with those passages that say, forgive in the way you've been forgiven. He says, that's speaking of the lavishness of God's forgiveness, the, the abundance of it, not, not the conditionality of it. Uh, so that, that would be his answer to that. Anyway, next question. Good. All right. Thanks, guys. Uh, John, we'll start over on your side. Morning. Hey, Diane. A famous pastor once said, I'm not troubled about those passages in the Bible that I don't understand. I'm troubled about those that I do understand. What passages trouble you and why? That's a great question. You know, the one that troubles me the most is, I suppose, where Jesus says, you know, that which you've whispered in the closet is going to be shouted from the rooftops. That every sin you try to hide will be exposed. Uh, And there's a host of verses that are cross-references to that. Be sure your sin will find you out. That troubles me. There are other verses that trouble me because they're hard to understand. But I tend to gravitate towards those and preach on them. I like to find a text that's really not easy to understand and sort it out till I think I understand it, and then I'll preach on that. So it's kind of a challenge. But uh, I think it was Mark Twain who said the opposite. It's not the, it's not the things in Scripture that I don't understand that trouble me. It's the stuff I do understand. Is that, is that how you put the question? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so there you go. I like the texts that I don't understand. It is, it is a few that I do understand that trouble me the most and should. I mean, those passages are in Scripture, the warning passages in Hebrews, for example, to put fear in us and to motivate us to, to remain faithful. Yeah, I think, I think that's good enough. Um, you know, I mean... It, Hell is a troubling thought. Eternity in, in, in conscious torment where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth with no hope of ever escaping. It, that doesn't trouble me because I fear that I may be going there. I'm thankful to, to be assured of my salvation in, in the perfect righteousness of Christ. But surely any serious 
five minutes reflection on that reality is enough to make you go crazy, to be honest with you. And it's almost like we have to shut it out of our minds from, from any serious contemplation. Otherwise, it'll so unnerve us, uh, especially as we contemplate um, you know, loved ones who are likely there. It, it's so disorienting that you wind up seeing justification by death alone. Taking uh, you know hold in our culture, where all somebody has to do is die, and uh, we can be we can assure everybody else that they're in heaven, um, because the alternative is just so unthinkable. But that but that is not so, and I, and I think you know th- there are things that trouble me about the scriptures that I don't understand. I mean, the first thing that I that came up in my mind was you know Ezekiel forty to forty eight says there's going to be a millennial temple with millennial sacrifices. And Hebrews says there's no, more, no longer any sacrifice for sin, and I do not understand how those two things work, but I, I try to believe them both because I think that they're both the teaching of the Scripture. And that, it, that sort of that troubles me as to how do you reconcile that. But that's one of those things that I don't quite understand. But when, when it comes to things that I do understand, I think the right thing to do is to train yourself to love what God has said, no matter how hard it is. There, there's not a lot of me that is troubled by the scripture. You know, I'm troubled by the things that are troubling of themselves, like hell. But ultimately, what do I do with that? I resolve that God is just and he's right to be glorified in his justice. And if anybody is in hell experiencing those horrors, it, it is because they deserve it. And, and God's name is more precious to me than even that person's soul. And so uh, I hope that when those that I love, you know, God forbid, but if they should if they should go to their their uh, their judgment, I hope in that moment I could say my backwardness is due to my own not seeing things the way that God sees them. Lord, give me your own eyes for this. Help me to be zealous for your glory above all things, and to know that the Judge of all the earth deals justly. So. I, I struggle with the notion of things being difficult unless, of course, they're objectively troublesome because God is, God is right to do all he does and to say all he says. So what happens at regeneration? Because I know like John 3 will say it's like a rebirth and Jesus uses an analogy of like the wind going, like you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. Um, I think Ezekiel speaks of like a, a new heart or it might be Jeremiah. But there's different like analogies of what happens. But can we know biblically like what happens spiritually at regeneration? Yes. So, what state are you in naturally? Right, mind, heart, and will. You are you are depraved. Your mind is is darkened. Uh, it's you know futile in understanding. Ephesians four. Your heart is a heart of stone. Ezekiel eleven. Ezekiel thirty six. Your your ears are deaf. John eight. Uh, your your will is enslaved. Romans six. So in every way that you are a human being, all your faculties, mind, heart, will, are against God and unable to make the first move toward God, you hate every aspect of truth because you love your sin. And when the gospel is preached to you, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, says the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so glory is held out to you in the preached word, and your hard heart, darkened mind, and enslaved will is blind to it, and so you run in the other direction. You say, ah, you know, that, that, that's just not, not special to me. I, I find no glory in it. That's good for you. It's not for me. And then... What, is, what, is, what happens in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, 
on the basis of the, of the preaching of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So God turns the lights on. He uh, opens the, the, the darkened mind. He uh, regenerates, he, he takes out the heart of stone and puts in a, a fleshy heart that, that beats and pulses with spiritual life. He frees the enslaved will so that now what looked no, not glorious to you at all looks amazing. Look like, and, and what looked would look enthralling, your sin, right? You're sitting here playing in this mud puddle called sin and you're just absolutely delighted. God turns the lights on and, and, he, and you see, well, what is this that I'm minding? This is filth, this is garbage, this is ridiculous. That's, I, don't, I wanna get away from that. That's repentance. And then you look upon the Christ that you had no time for and you see his beauty and his glory and you say, I want him and you run toward him and you embrace him and that's faith. So the mind is open, the heart is renewed, the, the will is, is, is freed, and you repent from sin and, and embrace Christ by faith. All right, thank you. On the other side, Harry. Uh, yes, uh, the Lord answered my prayer as far as feeling far away from, from God. And with this verse, and uh, I have a question on it. Uh, this verse goes like this. Uh, this is the way that the Lord has dealt with me in my life when he looked upon me with favor to take away my disgrace among men. And this is Elizabeth in Luke one twenty-five, And very few people have even heard the verse. And, but in the Magnificat, Mary doesn't talk about her being with child. Could she actually just be giving glory to God in receiving grace and not talking about her barrenness in that verse? Not talking about her what? Her barren, being oh. in barren. You're asking about Mary. No, Elizabeth. No, Elizabeth. Elizabeth. In you, that verse so, one. So you're point. asking if the disgrace she refers to is her barrenness? Is that what you mean? No, it, it seems like she's talking about her barrenness when he took away her disgrace of being barren. Because yeah. that, was, that was a disgrace. I would guess that she certainly has that in mind. I mean, it was, it was culturally considered... Uh, maybe a sign of the Lord's disfavor or disgrace in a sense if you couldn't bear children. So that certainly is in her mind, but I think you're right that it's a bigger concept that she's praying about. It isn't merely her barrenness that the Lord removed, but you know, every hint that she might somehow not be, not have the Lord's favor. Yeah, I think this is a question about the difference between interpretation and application. And I think the interpretation of that passage is inviolable. You would have to overrun the context in order to make it about something else than that. And yet, I think it's entirely legitimate for you to say, well, I've never been a barren woman and then been given a child, but how is this verse for me, if at all? And I think that you could, while recognizing that you can't just wrest verses from their context and make the Bible all about you, you can say, secondarily, can I speak this in any sense about myself and my relationship with God? 
You know, I, I do that when I read the Psalms, right? I don't have enemies pursuing me like David did physically, although maybe sometimes I do. But, uh, but I do have spiritual enemies. I have, you know, I have Satan and I have, his, you know, his servants uh, actively seeking to overturn every bit of usefulness that I might have, just like all of you have that. You know, these are, these are our constant enemies. And so I'm not going to say that, well, maybe David's thing, there, maybe was, he was talking about more than just his physical enemies. Maybe, but it, the context is his physical enemies. But can I apply that to me? Yes, I have enemies too. Or in a similar context, when Hannah is praying in 1 Samuel 1 and 2 about her own barrenness, right? Uh, her husband Elkanah comes to her and says, why are you weeping? Aren't I better to you than 10 sons, right? Um, and while my first application is maybe don't use that line um, in, as my, in my own dealings as a husband, you know, I, I've thought of that text as in a secondary application. You know, I am part of the bride of Christ, Christ is my bridegroom. I'm, I'm one who kn- knew what it was like to uh, not be able to have children for a little while. Uh, Jan and I prayed for six years before the twins came. And, and so, you know, you, you kind of walk through that and you feel that passage even a little bit differently. And Christ as the bridegroom comes and says, am I not better to you than 10 sons? And when, you know, that application is, I think, perfectly legitimate so long as I don't somehow make the interpretation of the text uh, something where I have to read myself into everything. The Bible isn't about me, but it's for me. And I think that's the way that you, you navigate that, that distinction. Yeah, I just wanted to tell you that God led me to my phone. I have 25 testimonies of how God sovereignly worked in my life, and I didn't realize how close he was to me. Amen. Thank you. Thanks, Harry. Yes, on the other side. Yeah, this has to do with, uh, it's a salvation question. It's, um, Jesus says to be perfect as I am perfect. Go and sin no more. And First John talks about how I tell you these things so that you won't sin. But if you do, uh, you have an advocate in Christ. So a lot of these verses seem to imply that the sinning will stop once you're saved. Instead of this progressiveness that we hear about. You know, to not go on sinning, practice of sin, that type of thing. Jesus even says that I will write you out of the book of life if you don't go back to your early works in Revelation. I mean, there's just a lot of parts where it seems to be implying that that you can lose. And I do know the parts where it talks about being sealed by the Holy Spirit, sealed by faith, but then you also have that. So why, why are these types of, it's almost like contradictions in there? And is there something that I'm missing when he says, be perfect as I am perfect? Is there some contextual way of understanding that. Yeah, great question. And um, let me recommend a book to start with. It's uh, Studies in Perfectionism by B.B. Warfield, probably the most thorough discussion of what you're talking about. And and it's two volumes. I recommend volume two because he sort of traces the history of uh, perfectionist theology and responds to most of it. The, the array of verses you gave are often grouped together and made an, into an argument for perfectionism, sinless perfectionism, the idea that it must be possible to live a sinless, perfect life because Jesus commands us to do that. And my answer to that is pretty simple. Uh, and this, this deals with the verse where Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's like saying, uh, because 
The first and great commandment tells me to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Therefore, I must be able to obey that. And the first principle we learn from the gospel is that we are fallen and we can't do that. Uh, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So when Jesus makes a statement like that, it's to underscore the impossibility of God's high standard. The standard God requires for justification is absolute perfection. And that's why we need a savior, someone who, who is absolutely perfect and his righteousness is imputed to us. So that accounts for the forgiveness for the sins we commit. The other verses you cited were mostly from 1 John. And a, lot of the, a proper understanding of those verses uh, has to do usually with the verb tenses. And notice that in that very same context, in, as, as sort of the opening to that epistle, John says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. You deceive yourself. You know The truth isn't in you. So he starts by saying, look, all of us have this ongoing struggle with sin. And then he says, uh, if you sin, and, and it's not a, suppose if you do, it's more like when you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And again, points us back to the perfect righteousness of Christ. And then when it says the one who, who is born of God doesn't sin, it, it, the, again, the verb tense is important there. What it means is he doesn't go on sinning. The sin in his life doesn't continue in an unbroken pattern of absolute abandonment to, the, to sin. The, our bondage to sin is broken. You have the same tension, actually, in Romans 6 and 7, where Paul talks about you know, being dead with Christ, we're liberated from sin. And Romans 6 sounds very triumphant, as if you know, now we're free from sin, we don't have any more struggle with sin. If you're really born again, you won't sin. You're, a, you're living in victory over sin. But then he goes on in Romans 7 to give his own personal testimony and ends up calling himself a wretched man because he says, the things I wish I, I could do, I, I can't. Uh, so there is that tension through Scripture that recognizes God's standard is perfection. And while we were in bondage to sin, we're liberated from that absolute bondage and yet, there is still the ongoing struggle with sin. And, and John goes on to say in that same epistle, 1 John, that one of the reasons we look for the second coming of Christ is when we see him, we will be like him. Until that moment when I'm glorified, I won't be perfect. And you just have to come to grips with that the way the Apostle Paul did and and confess, I am a wretched man. I thank God that he has liberated me from the darkness and absolute bondage to sin that I, that I was in as an unconverted person. And I have a new set of desires and, and, and a love for righteousness and a wish to be righteous. But like Paul, I can't always do the things that I wish I could. I, I, don't, I don't always behave. There's a habit of sin in me. There's still the the flesh that, that hasn't been glorified yet. And, uh, and so the struggle with sin is ongoing. And anybody who tells you, no, 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 I've achieved perfection, he's lying when he says that. And that's the proof that he's not perfect because he has to lie to make that claim. And, you know, if you want to test it, just do something to make him angry and he'll lose his temper like anybody else. So, yeah, that's one of the classic conundrums of Scripture. Why is there so much triumphal language about 
our victory over sin, when in fact, in reality, in the, in the course of everyday life, every one of us knows that the battle with sin is an ongoing and very frustrating battle, and it always feels like I'm not gaining any ground because the more sanctified you become, the more sensitive you are to the remaining sin, it may actually feel like you're losing ground. Yeah, and, and I think, again, just to get like a categorical thing, it's a, the distinction between redemption accomplished and redemption applied, between our position in Christ in principle and the, the entering into possession of all the things that are ours you know, positionally. You know, Ephesians 1 to 3, Pastor John just finished Ephesians, is all about the, the high calling, what's true about you simply because the Father chose you, the Son redeemed you, and the Spirit regenerated you, right? But then... If, there's, if, there, if that's all there is, if all it is is, well, you know, I, you, you have all been sanctified by faith in me. Well, then perfect. Then I'm good. Then I don't need to do anything else. Well, then why is there a therefore in four one and three more chapters of instruction, right? There's, there's instruction to say, given all that's true of you in principle now, since there is fleshliness that is remaining, put off what remains, put, put to death what is earthly in you, Colossians 3, 5, and uh, walk in a, in a manner worthy of the gospel and the calling by which you have been called. Bring now, bring your practice in line with your position, in the strength of that position. But indeed, your, your position and your practice is divergent, and so sometimes Scripture uh, will, will will speak to us, speak of us according to our position, right? And and it sounds like aha, everything is done. But then it enjoins upon us the imperatives to bring our practice in line with our position. You realize, okay, I am that in one sense, and I am not that in every sense. Now I have to press hard after the sense in which I am becoming like that, in the sense in which that I'm not already. Yeah, the classic illustration of that, and it's commonly used, is the conquering of Canaan in the Old Testament. The Lord says, I've given you this land. But then he says, now go take possession of it. So he'd given it to them. It was theirs, but they still had to take possession of it. And they never did completely root out all the Amalekites. So they still had this struggle with the, with the remaining Canaanites. And uh, it, that's commonly been used. And I think it's a, a pretty good illustration of what the struggle for, with sin is like for the believer. The Lord has, has given us all the righteousness of Christ and, and a desire for, for holiness, and yet it's up to us to take possession of that and, and pursue sanctification. And we're about as good at that as the, the Israelites were at rooting out the Canaanites. Very good. Yeah, Sheldon. Yeah, great. Yeah, good morning. Now, uh, this is more of a church question, not really a Bible question. Now that we're two years post-pandemic, what effects have you seen the pandemic has done to the church nationally and even locally? Because I know that some churches have shut down because of the pandemic and during the pandemic. And specifically, how has it affected Grace Community Church? Something I've always wondered. Thanks. Yeah, that we could answer that for hours yeah. because... <laughs> Because while we were going through the crisis in 2020, there was, there was a bit of disagreement, I think, within Grace Church. Should we reopen the church uh, after the initial quarantine? You know, 15 days to flatten the curve became three months or whatever. And, and people started coming back to church on their own. And the elders ultimately decided, yeah, 
worship is more important to us than life. In fact, I intend to preach on this next week. I'm supposed to be in the main service. So I'll, I'll touch on this idea that our, our fellowship with God and worship for him is more important to us than life. And so we reopened Grace Church. But you know that that was very controversial. It was in the newspapers locally. The health department wanted to shut us down. And, uh, and even some of our fellow Christians across the country were critical of Grace's decision to reopen. I think even no less than nine marks wrote an article saying why we were wrong to do that. The effect you can see with your own eyes is that Grace Church grew in the process because so many other churches in the area were closed and stayed closed, some of them for more than a year. And anyone who has a regenerate heart, it would seem to me, uh, would, would reach the point where you, you crave that fellowship with the people of God and, and worship in a congregational setting. And, and so they're looking for churches to come to, and Grace Church was open. And uh, we gained, I think, more members in that the span of the last two years than we ever have in any two-year time in the history of the church. So one of the effects, all of that is to say, is it reminded us, I think, how vitally important worship is. And um, it did end up shutting down some churches permanently. I think there were a number of churches that closed and never managed to reopen. And in, in most cases, I think that's fitting, and I'm glad. I think a lot of bad churches got put out of business because they had never cultivated in their people that sense that this is important and it's vital to our spiritual lives to gather together and worship God as a congregation. And the people in their midst who really did love Christ found churches where they were worshiping. So overall, I would say it was, it was good for the church. There were, there were these carping critics in and around Grace Church who were using Twitter and and other social media to be critical of, of the church. And every time they heard that somebody was sick or, or this person had died, they posted stuff online that made it sound like we were experiencing these waves of death in our congregation. But uh, all of you know that that's not the case. That is simply not the case. I think Grace Church, uh, Grace Life is probably the, I hate to say this, but we're, the, we're probably the oldest uh, the oldest group by age, right? We're the geriatrics. <laughs> and yet, of all the fellowship groups at Grace, we were also one of the most lively and one of the first to come back. And, and I'm pleased with that. So The days in the tent. Yeah, those good, good days. And on Zoom. I, yeah, I agree. I think, in, in general, I think it purified the church. And I think that the, the people, uh, even some of those, those people that you're, you know, the, the sort of the Twitter trolls, uh, and everything. I mean, you look at some of them now, people who were members of Grace Church, and now, you know, the, the, the sort of the slide that they've found themselves on all the way down to putting, you know, preferred pronouns in their profile and supporting the LGBTQ movement. I mean, what that does is it roots out the hypocrites, right? And God was kind uh, to, to do that. And, uh, and, and other churches shutting down that needed to shut down for sure. I think, I think it's, it's one, of the, the mo- one of the most important things that it did was it, it helped clarify for us the church's relationship to government and the relationship between Christ and Caesar as heads of the respective spheres that God has entrusted to them and given them authority over. I think that all of us were a little bit maybe too, too quick to grant to Caesar the things that are God's. And through that trial, 
made us all take a hard look at the implications of a passage like Matthew twenty two twenty one and you know and Romans thirteen and and what were really the limits and extent uh, of of that kind of a thing. There's no authority except from God could be taken to say I'm a, I'm an evil dictator who rose to power through my own corruption. So since there's no authority except from God, submit to me. Really. What there's no authority except from God means is there are usurpers of authority and those who usurp it should not be followed as if they had authority, which came from God, but, but doesn't, right? And so helping us to see uh, re- really the lordship of Christ in, in this realm, uh, it's not just that we entrust to him the spiritual things, it's that he's lord of all. And uh, that has implications for those of us who inhabit a state uh, as well as, as the church. And so when, that, then when the next thing happens, and, you know, I, I think it'll be some sort of uh, something related to climate change, they'll tell us, right, that we're, a, we're some sort of public health risk because of how much electricity we use or carbon we burn or whatever else. And, and we'll be told, well, you can't worship in such big groups for this amount of time. And I think it's prepared us to, to be able to say, Christ, not Caesar, is the head of the church. So. Yeah, in fact, I think uh, five years from now, if you ask that same question, you'll get a fuller answer. Because what, maybe, maybe the most important thing that happened during the COVID crisis is it helped prepare us for persecution that I think is coming. And I think Mike's exactly right. It's the, that was just the first wave, almost like a test of... Uh, Efforts that are going to be made to shut down churches. You remember at one point, the, the governor of California was saying that congregations shouldn't even sing hymns because uh, that singing somehow spread the virus more than normal breathing. Uh, and uh, there, there were so many things like that that were suspicious and seemed to be specifically targeting churches. Uh, what The only thing that surprised me about it was that there were so many Christians or self-professing Christians who couldn't see that this is, there's, a, there's an underlying movement here that opposes a very real threat to the, to the health and well-being of the church. Yeah, and I think, it, I think at Hope it taught us that, unfortunately, our governments are not as benevolent and angelic as we would wish them to be, or maybe that they had been in the past, that, that there was so much goodwill that had been earned, you know, that people just said, well, they wouldn't, they wouldn't do this because they're power-hungry megalomaniacs, right? They would do this because they're, they're, they have an interest in public health, and they're trying to serve us, and I think that you know, I mean, without sounding like a, a nut conspiracy theorist, we're going to probably hear a little bit about that in the main service today. Michael Reeves is preaching on uh, Isaiah 8, where it says, don't believe every conspiracy this people believes. Uh, unfortunately, you know, th- those things that might have been a little bit uncharitable to believe early on wound up getting proven true, you know, week after week and month after month. You know, somebody joked that uh, today's conspiracy theorist is tomorrow's prophet, right? I mean, because that's what was happening. Um, and, and so I think, it, I think it, it wakes us up to the fact that the Lord of Darkness is not asleep in the government of the United States of America, of California, or of Los Angeles County. I think he's quite at home there. And uh, I mean, I hope it's taught us that you don't turn on the news to, to learn, right? You don't turn on the news to be informed. You turn on the news to be entertained, if anything. And, and you know, to sort of learn what it is that they want you to believe next. You know, somebody said, uh, 
if you don't read the newspaper, you're, you're uh, uninformed, but if you do read the newspaper, you're misinformed. That, that's, that's about right with the news these days, right? And so I think it just helps us to be, I think, a little bit more discerning and a, and a little bit more suspicious. Again, I don't want us to be these raving conspiracy nuts with tinfoil hats and where, you know, the sky is falling. You know, we, we ought to be confident and joyful and happy of the fact that God is sovereign and that he's rescued us and that this world is not our home, right? But it doesn't mean that we have to be gullible. Uh, and I think that the pandemic has, I hope the pandemic has taught us not to be gullible. Yeah, that's good. I know personally, you know, Greg, you asked not only our church, but, you know, the church at large, and I'm not a follower of that per se, but I think Shepherd's Conference for me this year was really encouraging because I think sometimes we think we're the only ones that were doing this. And yet when I talked to a lot of friends and a lot of pastors as I talked at the Shepherd's Conference, to a man, there was not one of them that told me because we stayed open, we saw a decrease in membership. Every single one of them said, because we were open, this was the biggest growth of our church that we've ever seen in the history of our church. And I just thought, wow, that was so encouraging to think that was happening all across the country. Maybe not to the size and scale of Grace Community Church, but in each of those little communities, how many people were coming to their church because they were open, heard the gospel. I know personally a very close family member of mine finally was convinced to leave her church just because she had her friends and all of that stuff, they, they didn't stay open. She ended up going to another church that really preached the gospel, and then it was just like, what have I been missing for all these years, you know? And so we saw that, and I think a lot of other churches across the country did. So praise the Lord that he, he used what Satan meant for evil for good. So that was good. Great. All right, next, over on the other side. Yes, sir. Hi, yeah, I had a question about... Um sort of like growing up in the church and assurance where you hear, like, you watch the baptisms every Sunday night, and it's like, and that's when I knew I wasn't saved, and that's when I knew I wasn't saved. And it seems like other people are growing faster than you, and it's sort of like, you know, how do you stop just looking over your shoulder wondering, did I do it right? Am I in? You know? Not a bad question to ask, actually, uh, for any of us. Scripture says, examine yourselves, and John MacArthur frequently points out that every time we have communion, that's an opportunity to really examine yourself uh, and ask some of those questions. And so it's not, it's, it may be an uncomfortable question to grapple with, but it's not a bad question to ask. And Scripture has so much. I mean, the whole book of 1 John is, is instructions on how to test your faith to make sure it's real. Scripture has so much advice in that regard that I don't think anybody should ever get the idea that it's wrong to uh, to examine your own faith and ask the question, am I sure it's real? Am I sure my, my commitment to Christ is genuine? Those are, those are good things to ask. We live in an era where easy believism and just casual assent has been widely accepted as genuine faith. So it's, it's that maybe one of the most necessary things today is to hear more preaching that calls people to examine themselves. And you point out that uh, every time we have a baptism, it, it's filled with testimonies of people who say, you know, I was in the church for 10 years or I professed faith in Christ as a young person, but I realized years later that I'm not really saved. I think the, the prevalence of that illustrates 
what many of us have said is that the, the flavor of evangelicalism that dominated the Western world for all of the 20th century and well into the, the 21st century has like generated this herd of false converts, people who think they're saved because they asked Jesus into their heart or, or whatever. And uh, so they call themselves Christians. Some of them even go regularly to church, but they've never really come to grips with their own sin and the need for redemption, the need for a savior. And so any, any preaching that causes people to reflect and come to that realization, I'm all in favor of. And the fact that you hear that so often in the baptistry illustrates that even in a church like Grace Church, it's likely that there are lots of false converts among us, people who are too easily assured of their salvation. And, um, uh, yeah, it's a problem. Yeah, and as, as pastors, we're always, that, that's, I would say that that's the task of pastoral ministry, is to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted, right? To try to discern who has assurance that shouldn't have it. And, and who should have assurance but doesn't have it. And if we get that wrong, if, if you try to afflict an afflicted person, that's, that's pastoral malpractice, and you'll, you'll destroy that person's spirit. You know, you'll you know, really run them into the ground. And if you, try to, if you comfort the comfortable, right, well, then you might sing them a lullaby on the way to hell, right? And you don't want to do that either. Um, you know, which one would you rather be wrong at? I don't, I don't know. I, I don't want to hurt a believer, and I don't want to comfort a, an unbeliever as if unto his destruction. But I, I, do, I do think that in our context, in our corner of the world, in our time, there, have been a lot, there has been a lot of comfort the comfortable type preaching in the name of Christianity. And so what, what's been amazing about this place for all the years that, that John's been here is he's, he's exposed that and there's been a lot of afflicting of the comfortable and you see the fruit of that in the, in the baptistry, as you're saying. And yet, then there are those, right, who, who uh, are genuinely saved, some from a young age. And they, they need to be comforted and they hear a lot of the afflict the comfortable messages and they wonder, oh man, you know, you know I, I, don't, I don't weep openly at my sin the way that that person does. You know, do I have reason to... To, to doubt. And again, it's good, always good to go through that process, like Phil said. But at the same time, I think we also need to recognize that, that Christ is a willing Savior, that he is eager to receive all who come to him. And that if you, it, 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 let's say you're not a genuine believer, right? And you're kind of examining yourself and wondering, what is it that I'm to do? What are we going to tell that person? Repent of your sin and look to Christ and be saved, right? Well, let's say you're not sure, and you actually are a believer, but you're, you're wrestling with those doubts. What are we going to tell you? Well, repent of your sin, look away from yourself, and look to Christ, and, and, and enjoy and receive from his hand all the benefits that, that he offers to those who are truly his. You know, the, 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 the counsel really isn't different. It's repent and, and trust, repent and look to him. And, and uh, in general, there, you know, uh, Joel Beakey preached on this at the Puritan Conference back in October, he kind of walked through the, the, the Westminster Confession, chapter 18, and it's the same in the London Baptist Confession, chapter 18, on assurance. And he talks about the three means uh, of assurance, the three ways that we get to have assurance. And the first one is the objective promises of the gospel through Christ, that Christ has accomplished a full and free salvation for all those who would turn from sin and put their trust in him. There's nothing more to be done. Look, in, look, in, look unto him and be saved. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. That, that, that he is a, a willing savior. Two, 
the evidences of grace that are in you, right? So that's what Christ has done outside of you, for, you know, on the cross for anybody who would come, right? Now, what has he done in you? Can I see any evidence of the grace that is actually worked into my soul? And it's, that's not so much this morbid self-introspection, did I do enough? No, no, no. This is, can I see traces of the Lord's grace at work in my life the way I can see traces of the Lord's grace external to me? And then, thirdly, Romans 8, you know, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Can I remember any of those times where maybe it's after a particular evangelistic conversation that required a lot of faith? Or maybe it was when I decisively said no to a besetting sin and established a pattern of, of uh, righteous living in a particular area of my life. Where, where there is just this flood of I'm real. Yeah, Lord, I've tasted and seen. I can taste it. I, know, I don't just know by definition that honey is sweet. I've tasted the honey, right? Well, then you look back and you say, there's the spirit testifying with my spirit that I'm a child of God. And I couldn't have made that up. I couldn't have engineered that myself. I mean, there are some things where I can deceive myself. And frankly, there are a lot of people who are good at deceiving themselves, especially emotionally today. But there, there's a difference between whipping myself up emotionally and the Spirit genuinely testifying to my spirit that I'm a child of God. And so if you work through those three, the objective promises of the gospel, the evidence of grace that Christ has worked in my own life, and the testimony of the Spirit, you'll be able to to make a good conscience of where am I. And again, if you're unsaved, repent and be saved, right? And trust in Christ. If you are saved and are just weak, repent and and see him and, and embrace him. And there's a book by Beakey called Knowing and Growing in Assurance of Faith. It's a fantastic little paperback that uh, would, would be a help to anybody. Knowing and Growing in Assurance yeah, amen. of Faith. Beakey did his doctoral dissertation on the doctrine of assurance. He's got a couple of books on it. So if you struggle with assurance, uh, I recommend any of Beakey's works on, uh, on the doctrine of assurance. All right, we just have four minutes. I, I'm sorry, everybody, stand in the back. This is the last question. I'm going to limit you guys to four minutes. So, yes. Yeah, Pastor Phil and uh, Pastor Mike, could you, uh, do you think it's appropriate to, in a prayer meeting, to use Matthew 18, 20 as uh, in a prayer, in a group, or is it just for discipline? Could you please explain that? Well, the context is for discipline. But And it's one of those verses that people often will scold you uh, if you don't acknowledge that when you, when you quote it. But I think the principle holds true. Let me, let me read the verse. It's where Jesus says, where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. The principle holds true. In the context, he is talking about his involvement with and agreement with the process of discipline when it's done right and according to scripture, that he, he's, he's giving authority to the church to basically excommunicate people, discipline them, declare them, you know, outside the church. And he's saying he's heaven's in agreement with those decisions. But I still think the principle holds true that, well, the truth is, it's even bigger than that. Christ is omnipresent. He says, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So he's, he's present even if, you know, one believer is there. He's present no matter where you go. So I, I don't think it's necessarily far-fetched to quote that verse and say, 
especially in a prayer meeting, Christ is here in our midst. The principle holds true. I think it's worth acknowledging that in the context where Jesus said it, he was speaking specifically about the discipline process. And, and, all, and so, so, all, so long as you don't you know, seek to uh, manipulate the, 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 the supposed presence of Christ into a rubber stamp for whatever it is your two- or three-person prayer meeting is trying to accomplish. You know, Lord, the, the two, three of us are here gathered in your name, and so that means you're here. So uh, we know that you should make the conscience of Betty burn hard on her, you know what I mean, and she, you know, because she's in sin and all these sorts of things. Like if you're trying to use the name of Christ or the presence of Christ to rubber stamp your agenda because two or three are gathered, or Lord, two or three are gathered, you're here, and so we decree and declare that 2023 will be a financial success, right? right? Like all, all of that stuff, which is what gets said, right? Um, you know, that's garbage, but yeah, you know, you, lo, I am with you always, even at the end, end of the age, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is the hope of glory. Christ is in you. So, um, the, I mean, there's a million in Romans 8, the Spirit dwells in you. So, uh, Christ is in one person, but I can't use that as, a, as some sort of stamp of authority. In this context... Jesus is intending that to be a stamp of authority. Since everything is to be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses, when these three and four steps are followed, established by the mouth of two or three witnesses, there I have entrusted the keys of the kingdom of heaven to you. Whatever you buy on, on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And therefore I say that if you say, elders, that this person is an unbeliever, or at least behaving as an unbeliever, then I say that's so, you know, and, and if you say that they're to, be, they're to be loosed from their sins, right, then I say that that's so. so. So the context actually is ratification, this sort of stamp of heavenly approval, and it's for that particular process. Is Christ with every believer? Yes. But when you claim that promise, don't make it so that you, you just, I'm, I'm, Christ agrees with whatever it is that we decide in this three-person prayer meeting. Good. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Mike and Phil, for taking this time. And uh, let me close us in prayer, and then you'll be dismissed. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day that you've given us to look intently into your word. Thank you for Pastors Phil and Mike and for their diligence and and training and, and just giving them to us as faithful shepherds of their flock. Lord, but more so, we even thank you for your word that they rely upon, that we are not here listening to two men and their worldly wisdom, but that it's because they know your word, that we can trust your word, that we can definitively hear them speak these things because we know that your word comes directly from you. And Lord, just uh, take us now into the second hour and uh, allow us again to, to hear your word proclaimed, prepare our hearts and minds for that message. Just bless our, our speaker today and uh, all that goes into what he's about to tell us. And uh, Lord, help us to be teachable. Help us to be men and women who say we love your word, but also obey your word. And Lord, we just thank you for all these things in your name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.